0: We're going to be reading from today's passage, which is Genesis chapter 3, verses 6 to 7 and 14 to 24. Uh, If you would like to turn there in one of the the Bibles there in the pews, it's going to be on page 2. So this is probably one of the easiest passages to find. Please listen now to the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reached out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we
1: come before you and we pray that as we approach your word this morning that you would make known to us the wondrous mystery of your love and grace, that you would make known to us the mystery that we can be here this morning as we are, and that we can be even far more broken than we could ever imagine. But the wondrous mystery of the good news of the gospel is that we can be at the same time far more broken than we could ever imagine, but also far more loved and accepted and secure and approved of than we could have ever dared to dream possible. And so, Father, we pray that you would take us now to this good news, uh, to this wonderful mystery, um, and unveil it to us for it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. And children, ages three to first grade, you're dismissed to Children's Church. So if you make your way to the back of the sanctuary, you'll be taken to your class. Um, This morning, we're continuing our series. Right now, on Sunday mornings, we're going through the book of Genesis. And um, We've given ourselves three weeks to cover Genesis chapter 3, so this will be our our final look at this important chapter, and it's an important chapter because this chapter, uh, the very beginning of the Bible, is telling us what's gone wrong with the human race and the world, Um, and uh, we see here in this chapter that it is the story of mankind's fall into sin, his disastrous fall into sin. Um, it's the story of paradise being lost. Um, now, even though we read a bit more to give us some context this morning as we're finishing up Genesis chapter 3, we're really going to be focusing on verses 21 through 24 of our passage if you want to open up your Bible and look there. But, but listen, Genesis chapter 3, this, naturally this story Um, is a lot of bad news, right? Um, But we've seen this in the past weeks, and we'll see it again today, that even this story um, at its very lowest points, um, and it has a lot of low points, but even at its lowest points, it is a story that is dripping with grace at every turn. And it's because this is also the story of a God who loves His broken but beautiful creation. It's the story of a God who moves to redeem and restore His broken creation. Um, For some of us, this this might be a bit of a refresher, but listen, you know, sin, um, that kind of language, to many of us, it sounds archaic and outdated And unenlightened to talk about things like sin and evil, Um, but David Brooks, uh, columnist for the New York Times, uh, he wrote this: um, In centuries past, people built moral systems that acknowledged this weakness. These these systems, he writes, emphasized our sinfulness. They reminded people of the evil within themselves. Life was seen as an inner struggle against selfish forces inside. And these vocabularies made people aware of how their weaknesses manifested themselves and these systems gave people categories with which to process the savagery and scripts to follow when they confronted it. Um, See, we are losing right now uh, in our culture the vocabulary and categories of sin and evil, and it is leaving us with a language that is entirely insufficient to deal with the reality that we face day in and day out in life. Um, Charles Spurgeon, the great 19th century preacher, uh, he once wrote that all originality and no plagiarism makes for very dull preaching. Um, And so... Here's the gist of an illustration that I'm stealing and plagiarizing from another preacher. Um, But some of you no doubt remember the movie um, The Silence of the Lambs with… The serial killer Hannibal Lecter, right? And uh, Hannibal Lecter was played by Anthony Hopkins, and then there was Officer Sterling, the FBI agent who's played by Jodie Foster. And Officer Sterling, interviewing Hannibal Lecter, looked at him across the table and asked him this, what happened to you that you have become like this? Now, you Stop right there. That is the assumption of our modern worldview and of our culture, right? For you to do these kind of savage, violent, and atrocious types of things, something must have happened to you to make you like that. Well, here's what Hannibal Lecter said to her in response. He said to her, nothing happened to me, Officer Starling. He said, "'I happened. You can't reduce me to a set of, behavior, a set of influences. You've, got, you've given up good and evil for behaviorism, Officer Starling. You've got everybody in dignity pants. Nothing is ever anybody's fault.'" And then he said this, "'Look at me, Officer Starling. Can you stand to say that I'm evil?' He's saying, "'Your modern worldview has no categories.'" It doesn't have a vocabulary sufficient for me, but here I am nonetheless. Now, see, the language of sociology or psychology or biology, they can all be helpful to us, right? Um, But none of their vocabularies or categories are sufficient for dealing with life as it is, in, in the reality of its brokenness. You know, you talk about maladaptive behavior or dysfunction or natural selection. That language, it does not do justice in your life to the violence, to the hate, to the bigotry, to the radical self-centeredness that you, you and I see day in and day out. It doesn't do justice to the racism, the abuse, the anger, the corruption, the pain that we see at work in the real world. We need a vocabulary that is sufficient enough to deal with life as it is, but there's also this glorious twist that we desperately need to pay attention to. Flannery O'Connor, she wrote, there is something in us as storytellers and as listeners to stories that demands the redemptive act. The reader of today, she writes, looks for this motion, and rightly so, but what he has forgotten is the cost of it. She writes, his sense of evil is diluted or lacking altogether, and so he has forgotten the price of restoration. You see, the Bible gives us a vocabulary and categories of sin and evil that are robust enough to describe the reality that we experience, but they also set the stage. For a costly love and grace and redemption and restoration that we are all longing for in this life that can come into this world and heal us in the brokenness of this world. So here we are in these final verses of chapter three, Genesis chapter three, and and I want us to think about three things together. I want us to talk about the home we lost. And then I want us to talk about the covering we need. And then finally, I want us to talk about the way back home and to the covering we need. So first, the home we lost. See, verse 23 and 24 tell us that when mankind sinned, we lost our true home, right? Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden. He drove out the man, right, banished, right, Excised and expelled and alienated and cut off. He was taken from his home. He was homeless. And that right there is the human experience. And whether we put it like that or not, we all know it and we all feel it that we have been cut off from our true home. What do we mean when we talk about home? I was watching one of those t v singing competitions not too long ago, and um the contestants they were they were all told they were given this theme for which they had to pick a song and come back and sing uh, for this competition and The theme they were told was home but very surprisingly, nobody sang songs about. Nails or wood screws or, you know, ductwork or two-by-four studs or anything like drywall, right? That's a house, right? Construction materials, right? Designs, blueprints, closet space, whatever. Home is different. Home is relationships. Home is a place of love, right? Home is a place of rest, and joy. Home is the place where you go to get rejuvenated and replenished, right? It's a place where life flourishes and doesn't drain you, right? This, it, home is the place where you're known and loved. It's a place where you can let your guard down and be seen and accepted. You know, now, if you listen to your radio, there's no shortage of songs about that kind of stuff, about longing for that. We are We have been cut off from our true home, and that's what we're all aching for. That's what we're longing for and we're hungering for and we're searching for that kind of home. And some of us spend all of our lives trying to create that home, trying to build it or to arrive there or try to recreate some version of home we feel we've experienced but has vanished from us, right? Genesis 2 was paradise, right? Mankind was at home in God's garden, And life flourished and blossomed in in fruitfulness there. Every need of theirs was met there. There was the joy of fulfilling work and harmony like none of you have experienced on the best day of your work and accomplishments. Right? There was the glorious freedom of knowing and being known without any shame. But when mankind sinned, when they decided to turn away from God and from His face and become their own God's, Everything fell apart. I mean, Genesis chapter 2 was about paradise, but Genesis chapter 3 is all about alienation. It's all about homelessness, right? That we're alienated from this world. This world is now at enmity with us, right? It's thorns and thistles till the dust we return, right? We're alienated from ourselves in deep shame, and we're alienated and at war with one another, you know, you just pick up a newspaper, you, you turn to your favorite, you know, news channel, whether it's Fox or CNN, we're not going to get into that. But, the, you know, the human experience, it's one of alienation, and it's all around us, right? We are not at home in this life, and we've been trying to address the cause of our alienation ever since the Garden. Right. We've been trying to locate the cause of our alienation in society. You know, is it big government or is it small government? Right? Or we're looking for it in psychology. You know? Is it nurture or nature? You know? Or in knowledge or in science? You know? Is what we really need more education or more access to better resources? Right? It, because here's what we're thinking. We're thinking if we can find the cause then we can fix what went wrong with the world and with us. But Genesis chapter 3 is saying that the ultimate cause of all our alienation, whether that alienation is social or psychological or intellectual or political, is from one thing. It is our alienation from God Himself. The cause is our sin. When we left Him, we left home. And everything fell apart. Why is that? It is because home is about relationship. Listen, what made the garden paradise? And what made the garden flourish, right, in freedom, in rest, and joy, it was the presence of God. None of the biblical writers are ever longing for a geographical garden, a piece of Mesopotamian farmland. They are longing for the face of God, for the presence of God, because that's the home we lost. When my wife Jennifer and I, when we started dating, um, she was working with the girls in a youth program at a large church in Jackson, Mississippi. And one night, uh, I I called her up to ask her out on a date for that coming weekend. And I called her up to ask her out, and she said, that she couldn't go because she needed to go to this high school play at Jackson Prep, this local uh, high school in Jackson, Mississippi. And uh, she needed, she explained, to go there to support one of the girls in her youth group. And so she asked me instead, Would I rather come to the high school play with her and then we could go out afterwards? Um, now, I have grown significantly in my appreciation for the arts, um, but um, back then my thought was, was basically if it's a good play, they'll make it into a movie and that's when I'll watch it. Um, and, um, you know, but this wasn't even just a play, it was a high school play. <laughs> I mean, the acting was going to be awkward and subpar, and she knew someone in the play, but I didn't know anyone in the play. But, but here's the deal. When she asked me to go to the play, I didn't bat an eye. I didn't skip a beat. Immediately, I just said, absolutely. I would love to go to that play with you. Um, you know, what time should I pick you up? And, and why? Because she would be there, right? And that, that's all that I needed, right? It was all about her presence. It was all about being there with her. To me, that, that was paradise, right? She was going to be there. Preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones, he wrote that not, there's nothing more obvious in life than that every one of us has a sense of loss. And he goes on, do we not all have an idea that somehow or other we are missing something? We all have an idea that there's something better, something higher. We all know know something about a longing for what Wordsworth called an ampler ether, a diviner air, and he says, you cannot explain it away. You have this sense, he says. Everybody has it. In all of our chasing, and in all of our searching, and all of our grasping, and all our efforts to arrive somewhere, do we see this that we have lost? our home, we were made for the presence of God. We were made for the face of God and the embrace of no other arms, the smile of no other face, the sound of no other voice, right, the arrival at no other place will ever be enough to make us whole again because we lost our true home. All right, second, the plot thickens a bit here uh, to talk about the covering of that we need. Um, you know, when you read Genesis chapter 3, this is the image that, that sticks out or in, in your mind. As soon as man and woman sin, they're immediately scrambling to cover themselves with fig leaves, as we read in verse 7. Um, now, why is that? I mean, they were naked before the fall, and it wasn't a problem. They were naked before sin, and it wasn't a problem. But all of a sudden, all of a sudden, they feel themselves to be dangerously exposed, uh, to be vulnerable, to be unprotected. See, before this, this, this story is telling us that they, before this, they were completely at home and completely comfortable with seeing and being seen, with knowing and being known. That was paradise. But now we've got to hide, and we've got to cover up, and we've got to control what everybody sees about us. I mean, we can't bear to have, any, have anyone see us and know us with an unmediated knowledge. In this one phrase in our passage, and they sowed fig leaves and made themselves loincloths. In that one phrase, you have a complete summary of the entire history of humanity. Listen, what is shame, right? Shame is this, it's this deep awareness it's this feeling, it's this sense, and this fear that we're not enough. Right? That This awareness that something deep is wrong with us. That we don't have what it takes in life. That one day we're going to be found out to be the frauds we really are. That's what shame is. Now listen... Our past experiences um, and our past interactions and traumas and environments, they can very certainly deepen the shame we experience. And those past experiences and traumas, they can speed it up and they can magnify it, but they're not the cause of the shame in our lives. Genesis chapter 3 says that the villain, the cause, is our sin— and are turning away from God's face. Now we're full of deep fearful and we have this painful insecurity in life about who we are, right? This anxiety about who we are. And we are desperately trying to cover up. Right? We're trying to prove to ourselves and others that we're okay. That we matter, that we have value that we are in fact lovable, right? And we're running from any kind of penetrating gaze into our lives. We are all covering up in our modern fig leaves, from the insecurity that keeps us silent and isolates us from others, because we can't stand for anyone to have this unmediated knowledge of us to this anger that lies deep in our hearts and this bitterness, and we direct it towards others or we direct it even to God Himself because it deflects a gaze into who we are. From a constant mocking and ridicule that masquerades in our lives as humor but is really designed to cover up and keep people away from knowing us and cover up our own inadequacy, Right to a workaholism, that's driven by a fear that we're going to be found out to be a fraud. And you can call it drive, and you can call it ambition, and all kinds of other things. But it's really fig leaves, and it's really hiding, right? From an obsession and an anxiety about how we look to shaming and belittling others or groups of others because it keeps us away and it diverts our attention from having to deal with the, own, the shame we feel about ourselves, right? From secret obsessions that some of us have with pornography or substance abuse that momentarily numbs and distracts from our painful self-awareness to a need that we have to win every argument and be right about everything or be religious enough. It's all camouflage, is what the Bible's saying. It's hiding. It's covering up. There's a philosopher named Sam Keane, and he wrote the foreword to this fascinating book. It's definitely not a Christian book if you pick it up, but it's by uh, the anthropologist Ernest Becker, uh, and it's a book called The Denial of Death. It's absolutely fascinating, but he wrote this in the foreword. No doubt one of the reasons Becker has never found a mass audience is because he shames us with the knowledge of how easily we will shed blood to purchase the assurance of our own righteousness. He writes, He reveals how our need to deny our nakedness and be arrayed in glory keeps us from acknowledging that the emperor has no clothes. Our modern fig leaves are all attempts to patch together some kind of righteousness to cover our shame. I mentioned this uh, singer a couple weeks ago, Rachel Platten. She has that great song on the radio. I, I sing along to it all the time. I'm not going to sing it this morning, but um, it, it's called Fight Song. You've heard the song, right? Um, it's, it kind of has this anthem-type feel to it, and you, you listen to what she's singing, and she says, you know, this is my fight song. This is my take-back-my-life song. This is my, what, my prove-I'm-alright song, <laughs> um, and that's what we're all trying to do with our fig leaves. We are trying to prove that we're all right, that we matter and that we have value and that we are lovable. It, you know, it doesn't take much imagination, though. The problem with fig leaves, the problem with fig leaves is that they're awfully drafty. Um, they're not good coverings, right? Right. Um, I, I think it was about a year ago, I don't know when the Golden Globes come on, but I, I think it was about a year ago or so I was watching, and um, I turned the TV on, and one of the um, presenters was Jim Carrey, you know, funny man Jim Carrey, and he came out, and he got up to the microphone, and he started by saying this, he just came out and said, I am two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey. Um, And then he said, you know, when I go to sleep at night, um, I'm not just a guy going to sleep. I'm two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey going to get some well-needed shut-eye. And the audience, you know, started to laugh, and they started to pick up on his sarcasm. And then he said, and when I dream, I don't just dream any old dream, no, sir. I dream about being three-time Golden Globe-winning actor Jim Carrey, right? And the audience, they're all in, they're laughing, and then he said this. Because then I would be enough, right? You you know, and he said, it would finally be true, right? And I could stop this, this terrible search for what I know ultimately won't fulfill me. And that's the genius of comedy, right? It kind of sets you up for the punchline so you can see something from a different angle. I mean, can you imagine? Here's this room full of people dressed in their very best, right? Hoping, and they're all hoping and they're longing, right, for validation and recognition of all their hard work and all their achievements. They're wanting to be accepted. They're wanting to be approved of. They're wanting to be declared righteous in front of their peers, to prove themselves all right, right? And there's Jim Carrey saying something like this, we all long to deny our nakedness and to be arrayed in glory so we don't have to acknowledge that the emperor really has no clothes and that these awards will never be enough to cover you and your shame. So the question is, we're all doing this. We're all covering up with fig leaves, and the question is, how's it working out for us? Right, Rachel Platten, she sings that song about proving she's all right, but the final verse of that song goes like this, I'm losing friends, and I'm chasing sleep. Everybody's worried about me. I'm in too deep. Say, I'm in too deep. Whatever our fig leaves, they will never be enough They're always drafty. They'll always wilt and wither. And then comes a hint in the passage that we read, a beautiful hint of grace in verse 21, and the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. They didn't clothe themselves. God came and gave them a permanent covering. There is a covering we need. But we will never be able to cover ourselves by doing, by working, by performing, by achieving. Right? God himself is going to be the one, he's saying, who comes to cover us with the righteousness that will never wilt, that will never fade, that will never wither. And it is a beautiful hint of his costly grace. Okay, the last thing we're going to talk about this morning is the way back home and to this covering that we need. Man and woman, they're expelled from the garden. They're banished. They're driven out of the garden. And all of a sudden, we have this huge problem, right? The only way back home, the only way back into the presence of God, the only way to come before His face, it's now guarded by a cherubim and a flaming and turning or flashing sword at the entrance to get home. We have to get past the cherubim and this flaming sword. I know it's late this morning, and we talked about this in chapter 2, so I'm I'm just going to try to be as brief as I can here. But when you read the Old Testament, you eventually get to a point as you read through the Old Testament where God's people, they build a tabernacle, and then the tabernacle becomes the temple, and it's this place of worship, right? And if you pay close attention to it, you'll see that the tabernacle and the temple, they were patterned after the Garden of Eden. And it's because all the biblical writers looked at the Garden of Eden, and they saw the Garden of Eden as an archetypal sanctuary where man worshipped in the presence of God. Now, we could do a ton more with this, but let me just mention a couple of things that are pertinent to us. Adam and Eve, they were expelled, this passage tells us, east of the Garden of Eden. East, um, that way. Um, anyway, uh, they were expelled east of the garden. The gate to the garden was at the east, right? And, and, and here's the thing. When you read through the book of Genesis, you'll see this word crop up time and time again, the east. Um, when people move east, right, whether that be in the story of Cain or whether that be in the story of the Tower of Babel or the story of Lot or, or wherever… It's more than a geography lesson. Every time that word shows up, it's there to say that people are moving away from the presence of God. That they are moving away from his face in their sin and in their rebellion. The tabernacle and the temple as places of worship, the place to come and meet the living God where God's presence dwelt, right? L- listen, it it always had its entrance was always in the east, right? That's how you had to come into God's presence, from the east, right? And at the heart of the temple, right, at the heart of the temple and the tabernacle, there was this place called the Holy of Holies, right in the middle where God's presence dwelt. But listen, to get there, you had to pass by three things. You had to pass by an altar, That is, you had the only way to go in was through a blood sacrifice. And then you had a veil sealing off the Holy of Holies. And guess what was embroidered into the veil sealing off the Holy of Holies? Cherubim. And if you got through the veil, you would meet more cherubim on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. You know, every time the cherubim show up in the Old Testament, it all has to do with God's holy presence. And what about this flaming and flashing and turning sword, right? The sword and fire throughout, they are clear representations of God's justice. And here's what this passage is telling us. The only way back into the holy presence of God is if justice is satisfied. Right? As storytellers and as listeners to stories, we look for the redemptive act. Flannery O'Connor wrote. And in the gospel, we see the true cost of it. We see the price of restoration. Because when God himself came in the flesh, he was taken outside the city gates. He was banished. He was cut off. He was alienated and expelled. And mankind took him, and they stripped him of his clothes, and they crucified him naked on a cross. There He was, exposed and vulnerable and unprotected to take the full severity of God's justice. Because, see, it wasn't just a crucifixion, right? It was the blood sacrifice, right? God Himself stood in our place, and the gospel is telling us that the flaming sword of God's justice fell on Him, And in that sacrifice, He took the penalty we deserved, and He gave us the record only He deserved, right? He gave us the covering we we needed for our shame, His perfect and blameless and spotless righteousness. Because of this sacrifice, the author of Hebrews writes that we now have confidence to enter what? The most holy places, The Holy of Holies, because of the blood of Jesus. Listen, we can come all the way in to the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God Himself. We can come home, is what it's telling us, covered in Jesus' righteousness. All the gospel writers tell us that when this sword of justice fell on Jesus, the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom, Why? To give you access into the presence of God, to bring you before your father's face, to bring you home. Listen, I put one of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis Chronicles of Narnia stories on the front of the bulletin, and it's at the very end uh, of his stories that he's telling, and it's this picture of the new heavens and the new earth, that day when everything is going to be put fully and finally right in this world, and every rock, he tells us, and every flower and every blade of grass looked like it just meant more, right? It was more real. And then this realization that one of these characters talks about, that they were coming home, right? He says, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. And listen, you hear that and you think, that sounds right. That sounds hopeful, right? But then it sounds abstract in the next moment because it sounds so far off to us, far off in the future and distant to us. In Revelation chapter 21, we're told about this coming day, the new heavens and the new earth, right? And again, it's this future hope that's put before us. That God will come and dwell with us. That we will be his people and that God himself will be with us as our God. Right? I, I, I mean, that's, that's the hope. That's the longing for home that we all have. To be before the face of God. And then it says this. Future tense. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning Crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And that's hopeful, right? And it's right, but it's still so far in the future. And a lot of times we forget the very next verse that follows that in Revelation chapter 21. Because the very next verse says this And he who is seated on the throne, Jesus, said, Behold, I am making all things new. Not future tense, present tense. Because he's saying right now, if you come into his presence through the sacrifice of Jesus, he will begin to make all things new in your life. All the alienations of your life that are symptoms of your ultimate alienation from God, if you come to him through Jesus… He will begin to heal and repair and make new, all those alienations, right now preparing, for you, <laughs> preparing you for the day when one day it will come in all its fullness, and we will say, this is my true home. I belong here. See, it's this story that if you embrace it and you work it into your heart, it will create in you a profound humility. A humility in the way you work, in the way you relate to yourself, in the way you relate to others, in your closest relationships, your humility before God. And I I know I'm out of time, so I'm going to rush through this, but just think about how how far true humility in your life would go to repairing and restoring and healing the alienations of your life. But this story embraced, if you work it into your hearts, it won't just do that. It'll also give you a deep freedom and confidence and joy that you no longer have to hide or try to prove yourself all right. You are completely known and entirely loved by the King of Kings. The cause of the death of God's own Son was to reconcile you and to restore you to your true home. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel that we find on every page of your Word. We thank you for the way you take your Word by your Spirit and you lift our eyes to see Jesus. Uh, Father, we pray that we would come to Calvary's tree, that we would come and fall beneath the one who is making all things new, and that that tree of death would be transformed for us and become to us a tree of life in Jesus. For it's in His name that we pray. Amen.